Hi, my name is Marie Osmond, and I lost 50 pounds on Nutrisystems. You can, learn, you can lose 13 pounds and up to 7 inches overall in the first month. You'll gain energy, improve your health, and lose weight. This will change your life. Hey, you're that guy, the my pillow guy. That's right, and I'm here to get you the best sleep of your lives. It feels great to wake up in the morning and feel well rested. It's shocking to me that a pillow can make this much difference in my life. This will change your life. You know, when you feel the weight of sadness, you may feel exhausted, hopeless, anxious. Whatever you do, you feel lonely and don't enjoy the things you love. Things just don't feel like they used to. These are some symptoms of depression, a serious medical condition affecting over 20 million Americans. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. You just shouldn't have to feel this way anymore. This will change your life. Oh, and by the way, side effects may include dry mouth, insomnia, sexual side effects, <laughs> diarrhea, nausea, and sleepiness. <clears throat> Hi, this is Pastor Joel Osteen. The future is yours for the taking. Happy, successful, fulfilled individuals have learned how to live their best lives now. They make the most of the present moment and thereby enhance their future. And you can too. Just send me your money. This will change your life. Well, Americans, and let's face it, the world is consumed with changing our lives. People are desperate for the better life. If I could just win the lottery, it would, I would be much happier. If I could just get a new job, my life would be so much better. If I could just get a raise, my life would be so much easier. If I could just find my soulmate, my life would be much happier. And feeding the flames of this dissatisfaction is the advertising industry, television media, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, and so on. And people are absolutely drunk with the before and after ads that promote this better life. Try this, take this, eat this, drink this, click here, drive on, and so on. Call now. Offer expires midnight tonight. But the biggest problem with all this is that way too many people are focused entirely on the wrong things. They're so beleaguered to get the good life now that they totally ignore or overlook the most important thing of all, the next life. Today we're going to be considering the most important thing of all, and we're going to see how the most awesome before and after can happen to us. This will change your life, really. So to do this, let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you're going to find that in the Pew Bible, the red book right in front of you, on page 976. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. In this passage, we're going to take a look at salvation and see how it's going to solve your greatest problem and see how this will change your life. And that, by the way, is the title of this sermon. Talk about understatement. And the main point of our study is this. Salvation is all for the glory of God. 
And we're going to structure it this way. Number one, verses one to three, the way we were, salvation is from sin. Secondly, verse four, but God, salvation is by love. Our third point will be verse five, risen with Christ, salvation is into life. Number four, and that's going to be verses six and seven, all for the glory of God, salvation is with a purpose. Number five, verses eight and nine, salvation is by grace through faith. And number six, verse 10, salvation is unto good works. So let's begin. We're going, to read to, uh, we're going to read together, follow along, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Now, our first point, our subpoint, is number one, the way we were. That'd be a good title for a movie, wouldn't it? <laughs> Salvation is from sin. Verse 1, and if you keep your Bibles open and follow along, we're going to be referring to this the whole time. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, as Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian believers, he's also writing it to all believers, to us. And he really is telling us what we were. Not only that, but he's telling the rest of mankind what they are without Christ. We were the walking dead. And that, that's what he's laying out here for us. It's our greatest problem. This is what we were like before we came to Christ. You know those old words, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. And the rest of mankind, those who don't know Christ, still, still deal with this greatest problem. They are still the walking dead. Basically, death means separation. In physical death, the spirit is separated from the body. And in spiritual death, the spirit is separated from God. So the spiritually dead are dead towards God, but they're alive to all sorts of wickedness. They're like zombies, the walking dead. Have you ever seen that movie, Night of the Living Dead? One of my favorites. <laughs> Or The Walking Dead on TV. And these 
shows feature zombies who are really dead people walking around and doing nasty things. They're walking corpses. Their bodies are like dead, decaying, putrefying beasts. And they function anyway, though. And I think that's a pretty good picture of what the spiritually dead are like to God. They're an offense in God's nostrils. They're like decaying, rotting flesh. Spiritual corpses separated from God, alienated by sin. And this is man's greatest problem. The Bible tells us that man is born that way. Everyone, including us, is born spiritually dead. Man doesn't become spiritually dead because he sins. He is spiritually dead because by nature, he is sinful. And that's the condition of every human being since Adam and Eve. A person doesn't become a liar when he lies. He tells a lie because he's already a liar. A person doesn't become a thief when he steals something. He steals because he's already a thief by nature. Committing sinful acts doesn't make us sinners. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners. Being spiritually dead is the past condition of believers, but it's the present condition of everyone else. The unbeliever isn't sick, he's dead. He doesn't need resuscitation, he needs resurrection. So when you think about it, our world is really one big graveyard filled with people who are dead yet walking around. People who are dead to God, dead to spiritual life, dead to truth, dead to righteousness, dead to inner peace and happiness, and ultimately dead to every other good thing. And that's what we were like before we got saved. And I thank God that I'm no longer dead, but I am alive in Christ. God God solved my biggest problem, and I'm alive. Paul goes on to say that we were dead in the trespasses and sins. And the Greek word for trespasses means to slip or fall or stumble or deviate or go the wrong direction. And the Greek word for sins originally meant to miss the mark. It's like an archery term. In the spiritual realm, it means missing and falling short of God's standard of holiness. And together, these two words show how massive of a problem that results from being spiritually dead. And furthermore, these two words don't just really refer to specific acts of sin. They really refer to a sphere or the realm or the domain in which sinners live. We were dead because we were born that way and because we were in sin. And we were dead men walking in the realm of sin. But Paul tells us next that the spiritually dead are governed by this world. And he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So in the state of spiritual death, the only walking or living that a person could do is following the course of this world. And the world here means world order. It's the world's systems of values, the world's way of doing things. It's the outlook, the mentality, the organization of life apart from God. And God is shut right out. It's man viewing himself as the center of the universe 
and in total control. So sinful man is carried along, controlled, and governed by that kind of thinking, that kind of outlook in life. He is swept away by the currents of the world. And just think for a minute what the world offers us in schools, in universities, on television, in movies, in the news media, in the social media. The world feeds us a constant diet of lies and heresies about God. It feeds us idolatry. It feeds us sex, murder, adultery, pornography, incest, homosexuality. This is the world. It's the whole evil sphere of influence that sucks us away from God. And that's why John tells us in 1 John 2, love not the world, neither the things that are of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, Paul, go, Paul goes on further to tell us that the course of this world follows the leadership and the design of Satan. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Dead men walking are really of one mind because they have a common leader, and his name is Satan, the ruler of this world. And he will continue to rule this world until the Lord casts him out. Satan is called the god of this world, the prince of this world, Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And he is the one who dominates and controls the world system, and that's only because God Almighty permits him to, for now. Satan hates God, and his main objective is to mar God's creation and to ruin God's world. That's why he came in in the beginning and deceived Adam and Eve. And he's been deceiving mankind ever since. Satan dominates the life of man. He has his forces, his powers, and his demons, all of whom operate in this realm of Satan, the world. He's called the power of the air. And the air here represents the realm or sphere of influence that's occupied by Satan and the demons. So the walking dead are absolutely dominated and controlled by this power. Paul goes on to say that the spirit of Satan, the prince of disobedience, works in the lives of willing followers called sons of disobedience. Unfortunately, we who are Christians have to wrestle against this power as well. But glory to God, he saves us, he keeps us, he holds us, and he will never leave us or forsake us. And praise God that we are no longer dead, but alive in Christ, and we are no longer dominated by Satan. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So Paul is showing us that fallen man, the spiritually dead, is controlled by the world and by Satan. And as if that weren't bad enough, now we see how he's controlled by the flesh. And he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, Paul's main purpose here is to show believers what their life was like. All of us once lived in the lust of the flesh, 
indulging ourselves in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And the word passion here refers to strong inclinations, desires of every sort, not just sexual lust. Desires emphasizes strong willfulness, wanting, seeking something with great diligence. And the word flesh is used to denote that which is completely opposed to the Holy Spirit. Includes my body, my mind, my affections, and my everything. The flesh is a powerful influence. The influence is not good. Galatians 5 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. So what Paul is saying here is that man lives his life of trespasses and sins. Because he's spiritually dead, he's following the course of this world, he's following Satan, and because he's governed and controlled by the lust of the flesh. And this describes the unsaved man, the walking dead. It's the greatest problem that fallen man has. And it describes what we ourselves were. And that's why it's so awesome. That, that's our before and after. It's what we were like before we got saved. Every believer, once totally lost in the system of the world, totally lost to the flesh, to the desires of the flesh, and totally lost to the devil once. More than that, Paul tells us that the lost are, by nature, children of wrath. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The lost, the unredeemed, the walking dead, the rest of mankind are children of wrath, objects of God's condemning judgment. And even we too, those of us who are alive in Christ, were once children of wrath. As a matter of fact, everyone born into this world since Adam and Eve, the rest of mankind is born into the wrath of God. They are spiritually dead, living in sin, alienated from God, living in disobedience under demonic control, controlled by the world, controlled by lust of the flesh, and ultimately objects of the wrath of God. This is a horrible picture. But this is the reality of the lostness of man, and this is man's greatest problem. Man is doomed. By nature, children of wrath. By deed, children of disobedience. Separated from God, condemned already, the sentence has been passed. All who die in that state will go to perdition, separated from God for all eternity. And Paul has gone out of his way to show us that's the way we were. That's our big before. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And here, we see God comes to the rescue. In verse 4, we find two of the greatest words in all of Scripture, which brings us to our second point. And those two great words are, but God. But God. Salvation is by love. 
in a sense, these two words, but God, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells us what God has done, God's intervention, God's work, something that comes entirely from outside of us and displays the wondrous, amazing, astonishing work of God. But God steps in to solve our greatest problem. But God, in his mercy, is staying the execution of the sentence. But God, in his grace, comes to save us. There's only one hope for man in sin, That's the two words, but God. Which brings us to Paul's point. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God's mercy is rich. It's overabounding. It's without measure. It's unlimited. And because God is rich in mercy and has great love for us, he provided a way for us to return to him. God is love. And because of his great love for us, God desires to be reunited with the creatures that he made in his own image and for his own glory. So in his rich mercy, he doesn't give us what we deserve. What do we deserve? Well, we deserve to pay the punishment for our sins for all of eternity. But in his grace, he forgives us and he gives us what we do not deserve. Salvation, eternal life. And blessings beyond measure. This is all God's doing. So all the glory goes to God for accomplishing this. God is love. God is kind. And God is merciful. And in his love, he reaches out to vile, sinful, rebellious, depraved, destitute, and condemned human beings. And offers them salvation and all the eternal blessings that go with it. And God displayed his great love for sinners and his great hatred for sin at Calvary. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because of his rich mercy and his great love, he offers forgiveness and reconciliation to every repentant sinner. And not only did he love us enough to forgive us, but he loved us enough to die for us, for the very ones who sinned against him. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for us. His compassionate love for those who do not deserve it makes salvation possible. And this is how God solves man's greatest problem. Now in verse 5, Paul restates this before and after. The greatest, most awesome before and after in all of life. This is our sub-point number three. Risen with Christ, salvation is into life. Back at verse 4 again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses before, made us alive together with Christ after, by grace you have been saved. Above all else, a dead person needs to be made alive. And that's what salvation brings, spiritual life. 
And that's the solution to our greatest problem. Before, we were dead in transgressions and sins. And now, we have been made alive in Christ. Before, we were enslaved by our sins and our carnal nature. But now, we are set free. Before, we were objects of wrath. And now, we experience God's love. This is our spiritual resurrection. We are raised with Christ, made alive together with Christ. Our spiritual resurrection puts, puts us in union with Christ. That's why Paul said God made us alive together with Christ. As members of his body, we are united to him. And so that we share his resurrection life and power. When we became Christians, we were no longer alienated from God and from the life of God. We became spiritually alive through union with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for the first time, we became sensitive to God. Paul calls it walking in the newness of life. For the first time, we could understand, understand spiritual truth and desire spiritual things because now we have God's nature. We can seek godly things, things above rather than things on the earth. Because we are in Christ, we are now pleasing to God. And all this is accomplished by the power of God, through the mercy and grace of our loving God, and for the glory of God alone. Which brings us to our next point, sub-point number four. All for the glory of God. Salvation is with a purpose. Look at verse six. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, raises up sometimes refer to the resurrection, but in this context, these words really apply to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Remember, having been raised from the dead, I think it was like 40 days later, Jesus was taken up into heaven. And here it says, we are raised up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the big after that we've been talking about. This is the most awesome before and after of all time. Our being raised from the dead with Christ means that we have been given new life in him. Our being raised up with Christ, our ascension, means that we are now in the new realm. We are alive in a new sphere. We are no longer creatures only of this world, bound by what we can see and touch and feel and hear and smell. We are no longer of this present world or its sphere of sinfulness and rebellion because that was our before. We've been rescued from spiritual death and given spiritual life in Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to be born again. Now we are in heavenly places, the supernatural sphere where God rules, new creatures, children of God, and citizens of heaven. Because of our union with Christ, we can think, work, and speak spiritual things. We no longer walk in darkness because now we are children of light. Not only are we raised in Christ, not only are we united with Christ, 
but we have been seated with him in heaven next to God the Father. And the amazing thing is that the Greek term indicates that this has already been accomplished. It's already been done. We have already been made to sit with God in Christ, and that's our position now. The seat next to God the Father in which we have been seated with Christ is a throne. This means that we reign with Christ. We are an extension of Christ's presence and authority in this sphere, in this world. And this seat speaks of victory. And why has God done this for us? Well, really, the bottom line is it's all for his glory. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And the words so that indicate the purpose, the why, of our being exalted to the heavenly places. And I think the reason is twofold. One, surely, is that we would be blessed forever. But secondly, I think more importantly, is that our salvation is for his own sake. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God displays the surpassing riches of his grace for all of eternity. God opens up his heart to show his grace, his kindness, his love, his mercy toward us. Just think about it. To be seated with Christ next to God the Father for all of eternity. We're going to be seeing, we're going to be watching, we're going to be listening, we're going to be hearing of this infinite grace upon us for eons and eons and eons. We're going to discover the newness of his boundless love and grace moment by moment, forever and ever. That's what heaven's going to be like. From the moment of salvation, throughout the ages to come, we never stop receiving the grace and kindness of God. Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, and, and forever. This is where we are now. Seated with God in Christ in heavenly places. Now God speaks to us intimately by his spirit through his word. And by bestowing on us his endless and infinite grace and kindness. All of heaven will glorify him for eternity because of what he has done for us. You read about that in Revelation. And now we come to one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible, verse 8, which is our subpoint number 5. Salvation is through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, here again, Paul tells us that we are Christians entirely and solely as a result of God's grace. Do you remember what grace is? Unmerited, undeserved favor. John MacArthur calls it the outpouring of God's goodness and mercy on undeserving mankind. It's the anacronym for God's riches at Christ's expense. So salvation is something that comes to us entirely from God's side. It's not God's response to something in us 
or something that we've done or something that we would do. Grace is in spite of us. It's not something that we, in any sense, deserve or merit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. We have no sort or kind of right whatsoever to salvation. The whole glory of salvation is that though we deserve nothing but punishment and hell and banishment out of the sight of God to all eternity, yet God, of his own love and grace and wondrous mercy, has granted us this salvation. That's grace. Furthermore, Paul explains that this salvation is not your own doing, that it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We can't earn a gift. If we did, it wouldn't be a gift. It would be payment, right? How many works will we have to do to be good enough to earn such a salvation? How good is good enough? How many commandments will we need to keep? How much money will we have to give? How many tithes will we have to offer? How many times will we have to take communion? How many prayers will we need to pray? How many fasts will we have to do? And naturally, if we did perform enough good works to earn salvation, then we could brag about how good we were or how many good things we did. Salvation would be our glory, not God's. And we'd be guilty of the very sin for which he died, the sin of pride. No, salvation is entirely of God so that no one may boast. It was paid for completely by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is his finished work. So then how do we receive it? How do we get saved? Paul tells us it's through faith. Faith is nothing that we do in our own power. It's nothing that we conjure up by our own resources. We don't have that kind of power or resources because we're dead in sin. Even if we did, God would not want us to rely on them. Otherwise, salvation would be in part our credit. And we'd have some ground to boast because of our great faith. Paul is emphasizing that even our faith is not from us. Our faith is from God. It's a gift from God. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God. When we accept the finished work of Christ on our behalf, we act by the faith supplied by God's grace. A spiritually dead person can't even make a decision of faith unless God first breathes the breath of life into him. So faith is simply breathing the breath that God's grace supplies. And yet, the amazing paradox is that we must exercise it. We must exercise the faith or bear the responsibility if we do not. Isn't God amazing? Doesn't this take the pressure off of trying to earn salvation? And doesn't this give us confidence that our salvation in Christ is secure? Since it's all his doing, nothing we could do could ever lose it. He will never let us go. And now finally we come to Paul's last point. This is our subpoint number six. Salvation is unto good works. We read in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is telling those of us who have been saved by grace through faith that we are God's workmanship. 
Before time began, God wrote the names of those who would be his in the Lamb's book of life. And he designed us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 64, 8 tells us, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Paul tells the Philippians in 1, 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the point is, all of us are still imperfect, uncut diamonds being finished by the divine master craftsman. God is not finished with us yet. And his work will not cease until he has made us perfect in the likeness of his son. And now Paul tells us that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. God created us. We are his workmanship. He is our creator. And he created us in Christ Jesus. But before we could do any good work for the Lord, he has to do a good work in us. And by God's grace, made effective through faith, we become his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And although they have no part in gaining our salvation, good works have a great deal to do with living out our salvation. No good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. They're called fruit. God has ordained that we live lives of good works, works done in his power and for his glory. The same power that created us in Christ Jesus empowers us to do good works for which he redeemed us. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the most amazing thing is, before time began, God created these works that we should walk in them. Think about it. God, in his infinite wisdom according to his sovereign will and plan, prepared these works beforehand, works that we should do, works that accomplish his will and his plan, and works that bring him glory and honor. God has a plan for our lives. He has intricately woven us into his plan for his kingdom, that we should walk in his will and fulfill his plan. So here we are at the end of this study, and what have we seen? We've seen God's solution to man's greatest problem. We've seen the greatest before and after in all of human history. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. We've considered that this will change your life. If it hasn't already, it will change your life if you allow God to perform this work in your heart. And not only that, it won't change just this life. It will actually give you life, not just here and now, but for all of eternity. So first of all, we've seen that salvation is from sin. All men are born in sin and they're dead to God, dead men walking. And we too were dead men walking, but thank God those of us who are in Christ are alive. Number two, we've seen that salvation is by love. But God, two of the greatest words in all of Scripture... 
God saw our greatest need, our biggest problem, and that is our sin. And in love, he sent his only son to redeem us from it. Thirdly, we've seen that salvation is into life. We were dead, but now we are alive in Christ. Praise God. Fourth, we've seen that salvation is with a purpose. Our salvation through Christ will bring glory to God for all of eternity. Fifth, we see that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And finally, sixth, we've seen that salvation is unto good works. We are called unto good works, which God has prepared for us from before time began, that we should walk in them. All right, so let me ask you, are you saved? Are you alive in Christ? Have you been washed in the blood are you redeemed? If you say yes, then God will never leave you or forsake you. If you said yes, know that he loves you and he wants the very best for you and that he has a plan for your life. If you are saved, then you yourself have a before and after story. The Bible calls that a testimony. Before I received Christ, I was like this. And then I asked Jesus Christ into my heart. And after that, my life has been this. Ask the Lord to help you write a testimony so that you can share it with other people and be ready to share it. And finally, know that the Lord has a work for you to do. I believe that that work is sharing Jesus Christ, telling your family, telling your friends, telling your neighbors, your coworkers. Jesus Christ saved me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. And so watch for open doors that God would open for you with the power of the Holy Spirit and walk through them. If you've never received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, why not? Don't you want this? Don't you want a new life in Christ? Don't you want to live eternally with Christ, seated next to God the Father? So please consider what Christ has done for you. Think about his love and receive him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this story is just too amazing. Lord God, I know what I was like before I got saved, and I was, I was a worse sinner than Paul. He didn't know it because I came 2,000 years later, but I was a worse sinner. Lord God, I was addicted to sin, and you know it. You know it all too well. But Lord, you sent Jesus Christ into the world to pay the penalty for my sin. Lord, I know that he lived perfectly. I know in my mind and in my heart that he obeyed the law to the fullest extent, to the dot and every cross T. I know that he lived perfectly. Because he's God. And yet, because he loved me so much, I know that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. So God, I confess, I'm a sinner. And I confess, I know Jesus died for me, and I know that he saved me from my sin. So I ask, Lord, that you would help me to proclaim that news. Help me every day to look for people that I could share. Hey, Jesus Christ is Lord. Help me, help me, give me boldness. 
Help me to be brave. Help me not to worry about what people think. Help me to, to do your work that you prepared beforehand that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray that for every person here, that we would be bold, that we would share the gospel message to this dying world. And I ask this for your glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.